All right, Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signalled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, Don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One day Jesus was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he, what he had been lying on, and went home, praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. 
follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, my name's Grant. I'm one of the staff workers with uh, Curtin Christian Union, and it's such a privilege to be able to partner with you guys, um, spending the week here and getting to know people in the community, hanging out at Christmas carols and serving you guys. It has been such a blessing for us, and hopefully it's been a blessing for you as well. So I'm going to be um, opening up Luke 5 for you, so have your Bibles open up to there, so we're spending our time there. It might sound like a strange place to start this, but do you prefer drains or heaters? Okay, let me explain. On ABC Radio, I listened to a presenter get up on her soapbox. She said when it comes to choosing your friends or choosing people you will share your life with, there are two kinds of people to consider. There are drains and there are heaters. She said, drains are the people who, when you have them around, they drain your energy. They complain and they're negative about things. They just sap your joy. But then there's the heaters. These are people who you're drawn to. Like a, it's like to a heater on a cold day. Heaters are people who radiate warmth and joy and they're just people who you want to be around. The presenter said, you need more heaters in your life and less drains. Drains will bring you down to their level. They will stop you reaching your full potential, while the heaters, they'll bring happiness into your life and they'll put the wind into your sails, helping you to become a heater type of person too. Well, how do you feel about that idea? Is there a little bit of truth in it? Well, at first I thought, yes, I want to be more like a heater. <laughs> Thank you. But then I need to ask, who are the drains in my life that I need to turf out? But then it hit me that that's not right. It wasn't loving at all. It's not the way of Jesus. Well, when we open up Luke's gospel, we see it's unashamedly about Jesus, the king of the world, arriving to save humanity. As we look in chapter 5, as ambitiously we're going to look at the, pretty much the whole chapter, we'll see how Jesus called the disciples to himself and how they responded. 
We'll see the humility and the holiness of Jesus in the way that he deals with sinners. You see, the way of Jesus is marked by humility and holiness. So right at the start of chapter 5, we see Jesus is a very popular guy. A great crowd was following him, listening to the word of God in verse 1. There was something new, something powerfully relevant and true in his message. Also, he was healing people all over the place, healing them of their diseases. Jesus was being noticed by the whole scope of Jewish society, from the weak and the poor through to the privileged and the powerful. Try to imagine the place where Jesus taught the crowd. It was on the edge of the lake, with gentle waves lapping against the fishing boats, fishermen nearby washing their nets. Some of them had had a disappointing night out, they'd had an unsuccessful fishing trip. And they would have had that feeling that you get in your stomach when you've just wasted a lot of time, but you still need to do the cleaning up. Then Jesus got up into one of the boats and used it as a platform to teach the people. And the first thing we notice about Jesus here is his humility. Just consider, as the world's greatest teacher, he's not preaching in a great cathedral or elevated on a stage, lit up by lights. He's not lecturing in some elite university or school with the brightest students or academics. The king of the world chose to arrive in first century Galilee. Not the glorious Rome or the intellectual Athens. He came calling common townsfolk to repentance. Well, once he finished speaking to the crowds, he turned to the fishermen who owned the boat, and he said to Simon, who we later know as Peter, that he wanted to charter their boat. So have a look at verse 4 with me. He said to them, put out into deep water and let the nets down for a catch. Jesus' first call was to go fishing. And notice the way that Jesus calls Simon, James, and John. He commands them to go against their better judgment as fishermen. And as you'd expect, Simon's response to Jesus was a slightly awkward one. He was an experienced fisherman who'd not only been at work on the Sea of Galilee all night, but he spent all of his life on or around that lake. He knew the best conditions to catch fish there. He knew the best time, the best places, and remember, pretty inconvenient because they've just cleaned their nets. Well, have you ever been on a fishing boat or a charting fishing trip? My older brother, he lives in Denmark, four hours south of Perth, and one of his favourite pastimes is to put his boat out onto the Wilson Inlet and catch snapper. A while ago, he took me fishing out to his favourite spots, but just like that night on the Sea of Galilee, the fish just didn't bite. Clearly, there was just nothing there that day, and as nice as it was on the boat, it got pretty tedious going from spot 
the spot and catch nothing. Now imagine I was to say to him at that point, let's go back to that spot where we were before. He would have said, no, don't waste our time. Let's try a different spot or let's come back another time. You see, his opinion would have overridden mine, me being a landlubber from Perth and him being a skipper. But using his knowledge of that area and the conditions of the day, we actually did catch a few good-sized snapper because he knew better than me. And in this passage, we see a carpenter's son telling the qualified fisherman, it's time to catch fish after a bad night out. Simon's response in verse 5, it seems naturally doubtful, but he honours Jesus' request. He says, it's because you say so, I'll let down the nets, he said. Just notice that, no other reason but because you say so. It's not obvious why Simon responded to Jesus in this positive way, because you say so. And he's going against his fine-tuned fisherman instincts. Surely he knew better than Jesus. Why would he say, because you say so and obey? Well, his maybe, to throw some ideas out there, maybe he didn't want to embarrass Jesus, this great rabbi. Maybe he thought there was nothing to lose. Maybe he thought it'd simply just be an honour, hanging out on the boat for a little bit. After all, Jesus was a pretty popular guy at the time. Well, we can guess, but what we do know is that he wasn't expecting that miraculous haul of fish. Think about Simon's experience doing exactly the same thing without Jesus. It was zero fish. It was a waste of time. Listening to Jesus' call to catch fish, though it was racked with doubt, it caused his small expectations to be blown away. Their nets began to break under the weight of the fish, so he called his partners over to help him in their fishing boat. And we know that their expectations were small, because in verses 9 and 10, we see all, all three fishermen respond after the catch in astonishment and amazement. That day, they realized something about Jesus' identity. He was a man of God. He was a man filled with divine power and holiness. We might think, as far as miracles go, it's pretty unremarkable, isn't it? It's not like raising someone from the dead or something. But for local fishermen... This was a supernatural event. Simon recognized Jesus' power over the fish, and it was no fluke that the fish were exactly where Jesus said to put down the nets. But then something hit him. Something hit Simon Peter. He felt the reality of his sin before divine holiness. He felt Fear, standing before Jesus. Immediately, his sinful character flooded into his view. He realized he was someone who was not worthy of Jesus. 
He was humbled, crying out, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Have you ever had the truth of God's holiness shine before you so that you see your own flaws before God's perfection? We read from the prophet Isaiah earlier today who trembled before the cries of the angels, holy, holy, holy. And the natural response to holiness is, as Isaiah said, is, woe is me. Because as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.16, God lives in unapproachable light. That day, that light shone, and Simon Peter got a dose of self-clarity. He knew that he was a man full of flaws. He knew that he'd made mistakes. He knew he wasn't holy enough or mature enough to be in the presence of a man who clearly dwelt in the, pro- in the presence of God. He also knew that it is too dangerous to be a sinner and to be in God's presence. Yet hear Jesus' soothing words in verse 10. Do not be afraid. This is the heart of the gospel message, isn't it? Those who humbly recognize how unworthy they are before God, hearing the sweet words of Jesus. Do not be afraid. So we're getting a picture here of humility and holiness. The Holy One came in humility. He came near to people below His status, responding to the Holy One in humility means realizing the reality of our, so, our low status, yet hearing, do not be afraid. Then Jesus gave these men another call, and it's catching fish was merely an illustration of what Jesus could do. With his next words, it seems like he didn't even give these fishermen a choice. All he said was, from now on, you'll be fishing for people. The call to follow him was irresistible. Now, just give a moment of thought to the possibilities of this second call. If the result of Jesus' call to catch fish was with two fishing boats overloaded with fish that fishermen fall to their knees. The result to call to fish for people would be far more significant. In verse 11 it says, they pulled up their boats on shore, left everything, and followed him. They left everything to gain Jesus and his mission. there's another man who received a call to follow Jesus, Levi the tax collector. And just like the fisherman, he's an unlikely type of person to join Jesus' team who responded positively to Jesus. We'll follow along in verse 27. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. 
Well, tax collectors like him, they were hated and considered traitors, siding with the Roman occupying forces. Yet Jesus said to him, follow me. In verse 28, Levi, who's also known as Matthew, he left everything and followed Jesus. And then afterwards, he threw a party to honour Jesus, inviting those who would come. A A large crowd of his fellow tax collectors. It says that Levi left everything, that is, he left his life centred on wealth and steady income to gain a life centred on Jesus and his mission. Jesus called and they responded. They responded by leaving everything and following Jesus. But what was it about Jesus that made them do that? Because this all seems pretty radical. Is this too radical for us? Could you or I leave everything to gain Jesus? What was it about Jesus that made them do that? In the middle of the chapter, so we've done the two ends of the chapter now, in the middle of the chapter, Luke introduces us to two men with physical disabilities. We meet a man with leprosy in verse 12 and a paralyzed man in verse 18. And we already know that at this point, Jesus is famous for being a miracle healer. So what's so special about these two men? With these two men, Luke gives us the evidence that we need to know why Jesus is worth following. Well, the first is a man with leprosy who approaches Jesus and says in verse 12, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus says, I am willing. Touches him. And he's instantly healed. Here, Jesus, just, just, Jesus didn't just show his awesome healing power. While he healed a, a broken body... Yes, he also healed a broken life and restored that life with his God. Because of his skin condition, this man was cut off from society, cut off from his community, his family and his religion. We can hear it in his words. He didn't say, heal my skin or sickness, rather he said, make me clean. That is, ritually clean or holy. It's hard for us to imagine today what it would have been like for him. Although we do get a a bit of a sense of this type of uncleanness, which is probably more psychological than scientific for us. The best I can think of is, I could clean my dog's bowl with hot boiling water and detergent, but no matter how physically clean it was, to serve food in it for you would be inappropriate. You see, you would be awkward embarrassed to come to my house and receive your dinner in a bowl that's not for people. It's set apart for not people. 
So I'd need to go to the crockery which is set apart for people, and that would be a right for you to use. Old Testament laws that deal with the status or something, the status of something being clean or unclean, it taught God's people how holy or how other God was, how set apart God was. To approach God, people must be in a fit state, clean inside and out. This man was set apart because of his skin condition and the unclean identity it gave him. He was an outcast, a misfit when it came to God's holy people. He was covered in shame, and yet Jesus touched him. Jesus touched him, and his honour overcame, even overwhelmed the man's disease. Jesus gifted him the honour of holiness, reopened the chance to again take part in Israelite worship, and then told him to visit the temple and follow the laws of the Old Testament. Jesus reversed the flow of shame in his life. And then we get another man, desperately unable to help himself, being carried to Jesus. Jesus didn't even need to touch this one. He simply said in verse 20, friend, or literally man, your sins are forgiven. Why would Jesus say, your sins are forgiven? What good does saying that do to this man's broken body? Wouldn't this man rather say, Jesus say to him, be healed, get up and walk? But we see Jesus took the opportunity to reveal something about who he is. And the Pharisees understood exactly what Jesus was claiming about himself. You see them begin to screw up their faces in disgust, and we read in verse 21, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Which is the right question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's a rhetorical question with one answer. No one. We can think of it this way. Imagine somehow I broke your friend's phone. Would it be their right to be angry with me? Yes, I just recklessly destroyed their property. So how do I restore their friendship? How do I restore our relationship? Well, I should approach them, admit my fault, ask them for forgiveness. Further, I should give them sufficient compensation and replace their phone. Maybe even a box of chocolates might help. Even then, whether they forgive me or not, it's in their court, it's their choice. Well, what would happen if you come along, a third party, saw those broken pieces of phone, and before anyone can say anything, you say to me, that's okay, Grant, you're forgiven, you don't need to pay anything. How would that help the situation? It wouldn't, would it? You might have just lost a friend, that's, but it's not going to help the situation. Only the offended party has the ability and the right to forgive the offender. In verse 21, the Pharisees considered Jesus a blasphemer because he took the right 
to forgive sin. In the case of sin, God is the offended party because sin is living a life without reference to God. Instead of giving God the right to rule His creation, you choose what is right or wrong for yourself. And this is why our sin is first a problem between us and God. The only way that Jesus could deal with God's anger toward our sin by forgiving us is to be the offended party, to be God Himself. But if Jesus was simply a normal sinful man like the rest of us, as the Pharisees saw Him to be, He would be dishonouring God's holy name or blaspheming. But with His words, Jesus showed everyone something about His holy identity, He claimed to be the Son of Man, the Holy One, who alone can approach the throne of God, on par with the Creator God Himself. Then to make it clear, this is exactly His claim, He did what was physically impossible and healed this paralyzed man in full view of everyone. Jesus undid the effects of sin restoring creation with His powerful words. Sound familiar? If Jesus' suggestions about Himself are true, then there's no one more worthy to follow. The disciples saw Jesus that day fishing in the way that Jesus called them to be fishers of men. We see here Jesus' authority, to cleanse shameful impurities and to forgive sins. It also explains Jesus' relationship with sinners. Now, can you remember when Levi threw that banquet to honour Jesus, which drew all this criticism from the VIPs of the Jewish religious establishment? In verse 30, they complained to Jesus' disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They said. Jesus replied, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Levi and the other disciples, they responded by leaving everything and following Jesus. They were sinners, turning away from their old life and turning to Jesus in repentance. The call to follow Jesus is for people who recognize that they're sinners, unclean and rebellious. It means leaving everything behind from the old life. It means following someone who has God's authority to forgive sin and who loves sinners enough to give his own life for them, publicly honoring them and forgiving them. These men certainly saw Jesus as someone worth following and giving their lives wholly to. But there's still a lingering question, isn't there? Was the response of the disciples really too radical? Could they really have left everything? You might be thinking, what about the fishing boats? Did they leave those behind, the nets and tackle? What about all those fish that they caught? What about the meetings that... Levi had scheduled in his diary. What about all the money sitting in the tax booth? What about Levi's house? 
Well, we're left with a lot of questions, aren't we? All verses 11 and 28 say is that they leave everything. The call to follow Jesus has echoed down the centuries all the way to us. The call remains the same. Follow Jesus and leave everything of that old life behind. Imagine a call so good, so irresistible that you can leave everything. And I, am, I take this to mean leaving everything behind that stops you from centering your life on Jesus. It means letting go of the illusion of control, letting go and giving Jesus control. It means leaving behind the titles and the achievements that bring you, bring you pride. Come to Jesus as you are with empty hands, with someone with flaws, insecurities and fears. In response to why Jesus was hanging out with sinners, he said in verses 31 and 32, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Today, Jesus is still calling. We've seen Jesus with the power and authority to say to the leper, be clean, or to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. We've seen Jesus' willingness to draw near to imperfection when it was seemingly impossible to draw near to a perfect, holy God. This was Jesus' mission as the holy king of the world. He came for people like us, calling us to repent, to leave the old life behind, follow him clean and forgiven. Because he was humble and holy, he makes us humble and holy too. He experienced the shame, exclusion, the pain and the taunts and the cost of forgiveness on the cross for us. The king of the world arrived to save humanity. He came not to call those considered righteous, the winners but the sinners, those who are losers, those are the ones he sets apart for his mission. So he didn't pick the heaters. He picked the humble. Those who come to Jesus humbly today, he still says, don't be afraid, follow me. This is the beginning of an amazing life centered on the most amazing human who walked the earth. So if you think, yes, I'm like Simon, a sinner, or like Levi, a moral failure, and I want to follow Jesus, act on it. Like them, look at Jesus and never look back. Because of Jesus, you can draw near to God and ask Him to heal your brokenness. He's willing and He'll do it. Well, for those of us who have been followers of Jesus for a long time, we also get the chance to reflect on whether we're taking this seriously. Are we coming to Jesus with truly empty hands? Or do we find our confidence in things that bring us pride? Do we need to leave behind the illusion that we're in control? Do we need to repent afresh of the sin that so entangles us? Also leave behind fear. 
Following him means suffering is no longer our greatest nightmare. Our relentless pursuit of personal comfort and pleasure can be left behind. In humility and love, Jesus himself left the comforts of heaven to suffer on earth for sinners like Simon, Levi, and for us. His resurrection gives us hope to endure suffering. He says to us, don't be afraid, follow me. So we've seen a picture of humility and holiness. We've seen that the Holy One came in humility, calling sinners to himself. Responding to the Holy One in humility means hearing those beautiful words. Do not be afraid, follow me. Jesus is holy, merciful and mighty. Will you follow him? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are so holy. Yet because of your Son, Jesus, we can draw near to you as our Father. Help us to follow Jesus with empty hands. Help us to trust him in all circumstances, whether good or bad. Father, we praise you that you are so merciful, that you gave us Jesus to restore this broken world, and that you are calling us to yourself through him. Thank you for these words of hope. Thank you for your grace. Give us the strength that we need to leave everything behind that hinders and the sin that entangles. And may we run with perseverance, following Jesus our Lord. Amen.